All right, Pete, Pete Giuliano. It is um, Saturday, May twenty first, two thousand sixteen, and this is Solder Smoke one eighty seven. One eighty seven, yay! A special one for you. Yes. This is. I'm happy to report to all Solder Smoke listeners the second anniversary of the arrival of N six QW. Yay! On the Solder Smoke podcast. <laughs> Now, Pete, is this the actual date, or is this just the month? The, actual, the month. The month. The month. The month. Okay, yeah. it's the second anniversary month. We don't stick to stick strict timetables here, but uh, but Pete, uh, thanks. I mean, it was a new day dawned when a you new arrived. New day here. dawned. Yeah. My, my years of, of lonely monologue ended when you when you arrived, <laughs> and it's been a, and, and and much appreciated, I must say, by uh, by listeners around the world. We get a lot of. A lot of fan mail. Everybody, you know, you know, is I, I, you don't understand. I, I have received large monetary bribes. From, <laughs> I never told you about this, but people said I'm going to send you money if you keep Giuliano on the podcast. Go, so uh, I thank you for that. You might be helping sending my kids to college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, has has Billy's graduation taken place, or is it close, or is it? In no, it's coming up. Coming up, they're in the throes of uh, of uh, prom stuff and all that kind oh, of. Uh, end of high school stuff so uh no that's that's a little bit way a little ways down the line but the big thing that's going on at this time of year in the ham radio world is you know you know what's going on right now Dayton. Dayton. yeah and you and i are i guess we're just bad radio amateurs because we are not at dayton well i gotta tell you I'm, i made the trip once and I said I've been there, <laughs> but I probably won't go back. So <laughs> you got to do it at least once. So I, I, have you ever been there? No. Oh, okay, been. I made my one trip to Mecca, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I haven't, and I guess one of these days I'll, I'll have to do it, um, especially for the four days in May uh, QRP event that goes on out there oh, around yeah. the same time. And uh, our friend Paul Darlington is out there. Oh, and yeah. So, uh, and, and and Bob Crane, our our loyal correspondent, W8SX, out there, covering the event. So I'm sure we're going to get a report from oh, from Bob yeah. on uh, on all the all the speakers at Four Days in May. But I understand that some of your rigs are on the scene, on yeah. the table. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, Th- this is amazing. Um, there's a club in Canada uh, called the Peel Amateur Radio Club, and uh, when Ben and I put out the um, Let's build something. Series of articles. I was contacted by them, and they said we're we're going to take this on as a club project. And uh, I I said, oh man, that sounds great. But then I winced a little bit because uh, let's let's face it, this is more than just a one transistor radio, <laughs> you know. So you wonder if uh, you know is the interest going to be lost or is it going to wane? But but they saw it the way through. And, and the Peel Amateur Radio Club did something very interesting to keep the interest up. They assign groups and uh, groups of individuals within the club to take one piece of the circuit, and then every month, what they would do is that in- group of individuals would discuss the gr- that particular circuit element, that circuit block module, with the rest of the club. So this way, wow. you got the participation, but at the same time, you sort of got resident experts on specific areas like the audio amp or, you know, the, the diode ring mixers and what have you. And so uh, it was really interesting to see how they approach this. And, and they take on a kind of a club project every year. So they had mentioned to me, oh, by the way, these things are going to show up at Dayton. Then one of our uh, one of our P 
people that, that listens to Solder Smoke, uh, Donald Glover, he he went to Dayton and he took his camera <laughs> and he took pictures. <laughs> and so you, there were two versions that were really were were there. One version was like my two foot by two foot breadboard, <laughs> you know, it had the big breadboard with, with all the and it works. And the other version was like Ben's, the Uptown version. This was in a box. And I mean, this thing had circuit boards. The wiring was all at right angles and very... Ooh, right angles. Right angles. It had an etched front panel. And and it's just totally amazing to see that these two, you know, both work. One is on a breadboard. One is in the box. And it's kind of like what Ben and I did, you know. So, oh, man, it was really nice to see that the, the club saw this way through, and here were some examples of the project. So um, I, I was told by QRP Quarterly that the Let's Build Something was one of the most successful articles they've, they've ever had in terms of the number of interests, number of hams, number of comments they've received. So it's nice to see that there's a, a that the project is not just something I got working on my bench, <laughs> but other people got it working as well. Now, let me ask you this. The LBS, it, as I recall, it was in two stages. The first was a direct conversion receiver, right. and then it moved on, right? Are, are the projects we're seeing now all the way through to completion? Oh, yeah, complete transceivers. And did guys actually follow instructions and build the direct conversion receiver first? Some did. Some just jumped right in. Well, we knew that. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Following instructions is not the, oh, the no, strong no, suit. No, no, no. Or, or when, when I get stuck, I finally get out the book. <laughs> but, but to that end, Bill, it's really interesting. Just recently here, uh, and I think that maybe I wanted to go back since this is the second anniversary, kind of the focus of of the podcast the focus is to share information share tribal knowledge but to really encourage home brewing i mean i i think you know by by what you do and what i do and we try to share what we're doing uh, on on the blogs and what have you 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 kind of wonder does anything really happen from this and within the last two or three months i start seeing stuff <laughs> you know well, you know and you know why we're doing this pete yeah you know why oh the money <laughs> no, no, because misery loves company. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I'd like to highlight uh, a later project was the Simple Seaver, and uh, a couple of uh, Japanese hams are building this project. One is uh, June, and that's uh, JH8SST Slant 7. And then another one is Ryu, JA2NKD, and, and they've sent me photos of, of their Simple Seaver projects. You know, with the front panel display and what have you, and it's just really, really interesting to see that. And and another one is from Dave Switzer, KG7WFM, uh, and he did something interesting. He uses the island squares like like I make with a CNC machine. Only he used the Muppet boards to make those island squares, and and some really you know beautiful work. And he has the uh, direct conversion receiver, the simple receiver part. So. It's really nice to see how people are taking some of the things that we're talking about or sharing on the blog and actually building hardware <laughs> and making it work, you know, and it just just really, really great. And, of course, the ultimate, having it show up at Dayton. So someone says, oh, yeah, you know, I actually saw one of those. <laughs> well, you know, going going back a second to the, to the club that you mentioned, the Peel Radio Club. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like that approach where people break it down and become experts and then present on the circuit because that really does 
lend itself to encouraging understanding of the circuitry. I mean, and, it, yeah. and some of that circuitry, it looks, it looks pretty simple, but if you get into how does a diode ring mixer work, there's some really interesting and uh, kind of deep radio physics going on in there. Oh, yeah. You have to understand what the what, what's the purpose of those inductors at either end. How does the diode ring work? What is a commutating mixer and all that kind of stuff? And so even though it's a, it's a relatively simple direct conversion receiver, there's a real opportunity to, to get the kind of understanding that we're we're always always looking for here on the Solder Smoke yeah, Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but great, and, and you know that reaching out, it's really cool when you see your projects being re redone in you know in far off japan yeah and i know you, you get a lot of you get a lot of mail from from around the world about lbs and simple siever and things like that but this pete this brings us now to the bench report portion of the show oh, and yes. you go first because i'm really pleased that uh things have settled down for you a bit and you're, you're able to melt a bit more solder and uh i think i think that's great and i know we've received emails from people saying i'm glad he's back at the bench i can feel i can feel the energy i can smell the solder smoke so what's been happening at the well, N6QW laboratory? I, I think I've, I've discovered a, a way to balance things, Bill. Uh, first of all, I still don't have the time to uh, devote like I did previously. Uh, you know, people would say, how do you turn all this stuff out? Well, I had a little more time. So so now what I find myself doing is is taking a lot of old projects that I had, circuit boards and things of that sort that are in the box, and instead of trying to replicate those, I'll fix a lot of them <laughs> or, yeah. or move them around. You do the same thing, you know, or move them around. And uh, like, for instance, I, I'm, I'm not sad to report this, but I, I disassembled parts of the LBS that I had on the two foot by two foot. And I've now incorporated those in a new transceiver that I built. And so it was five minutes worth of work. You know, I unscrewed them off the board, <laughs> screwed them on the top of my workbench, soldered a couple of wires, and boom, there you go. So th there's there's nothing wrong with with taking proven circuits, and that's that's ideal with the the circuit block modules is that you're able to move these things around and integrate them. And the key is, like Wes Hayward, 50 ohms, 50 ohms in, 50 ohms out. As long as you do that, just connect them. <laughs> You just connect the blocks and you're ready to go. And by the way, one of the new, neat things I've been working on is a is a new display. And Bill, I'm putting it up here on the Skype, and you can see the size of this. This is a little OLED. This is 128 by uh, 64, and this thing is really small. You can you can see my fingers are almost obscuring it. Although it's not without problems. I mean, it's a really small display, and it's got a little bit of color in it. Two colors or three black in the background, but I've spent more time, uh, and this is where it also fits with the schedule, where you can spend 50 or 20 minutes with the code, <laughs> test it and see it doesn't work, and then you go do something else and come back, you know, maybe an hour or two later and you get another 15 minutes and try something. So uh, I, I've been I've been experimenting with this, uh, the OLED displays. And then yesterday I had something interesting happen on the uh, new transceiver, and I've made a, about four contacts so far with it, is it had the 128 by 128, and I decided to kind of put it in the box. And uh, it, it, I, I took the dimensions, you know, you're in a hurry sometimes, took the dimensions of the display, and what I failed to do is I, I made the hole in the panel. I milled out the hole to the whole size of the display, 
not just the part that that you visibly see. So, so you had this, you had this gaping hole, you know. Well, you could just see more. You could just see more of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I realized they had a hundred and twenty-eight by one sixty display, and when I put that up there, it was a perfect size. I mean, it was the perfect size. So. The radio gods yeah. spoke. So then I, I said, okay, I'll just port the code over. And then the code wasn't right. Uh, so I had to re-put everything on and had to make some changes. Got it working. And then this morning I thought I'd take a look at it. And I looked in the Arduino folder and the sketch is missing. <laughs> the ghost in the machine ate the sketch. I have no idea where it went. So now I get to do it all over again. So anyway. It, ah, yeah, it's a yeah, great fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are those micro microcontrollers great? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they just, they're just, oh, they just play these little tricks on you. Those. Oh yeah, all the time. But but anyway, the the new transceiver, it's up on the blog, and it's really working very very well. I've got a Yesu filter in there, and uh, you know you can try all kinds of different filters because it's an experimental platform. All you do is change the code, and you've got a different filter in there. But uh, I've I've gotten some really excellent audio reports and and what's so hard to believe is in previously i was using an ne5534 ic for for the mic amplifier microphone amplifier which added a lot of components so lately i'm going to go into a single 2n3904 using a circuit that i developed and it works perfect <laughs> so a lot less expensive a lot fewer parts and you get sufficient audio gain to drive the SBL one. So I'm saying, okay, there we go. Good thing came out of that. You know, it's there you go. Sim simpler is better. So uh, it's really good. I continue to use the uh, the Raspberry Pi. You know, when I when I get on the air, but it's it's kind of fun to take these circuit block modules. And if you see the picture in the blog, it it looks like crap, but works like hell. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it just it's just screwed down to the, the top of the workbench uh, like you like to see it. And, oh, yeah. and uh, it works really nothing's moving you know I've kind of got it screwed down real well but eventually it's going to go in the box so uh, that that's what I've been doing oh man well I, I'm very much doing the same kind of things and when you mentioned kind of taking out old projects and working on them again that that really resonated I and I, I've been working on on receivers mostly I haven't really been building anything new since we last spoke but I have been kind of taking old projects off the shelf and and working on them some of them good some of them not so good how's it all 38 e bill i know i know well, well pete i, I want to i have two things to say about the s3080 um one uh, you were right it is a pig <laughs> and two the the lipstick is wearing off oh, there you go <laughs> one of our one of our listeners who's you know and I, I say this with trepidation because we have people out there who have deep emotional attachments oh, yeah. to the S3080 because it's the first receiver that their dad bought them when they were 12 years old and that kind of stuff and I understand that I got it but man one guy wrote in who is, who is an S38 fan and when we were talking we, it was commenting on your you know pig with a lipstick comment and and it, he just summed it up and he said, at closing time, I don't care if the pig has lipstick. <laughs> oh, kind of and out there, but it kind of captures the attitude towards it. Okay, I picked up this receiver at a, a few years ago at the um, Vienna Wireless Society uh, Winterfest Hamfest, and then 
I messed with it a little bit, decided I didn't like it. I had one when I was a kid. Sometime when I was a kid, I had it, and that's when I picked it up. I remember I gave it to my cousin, and she took it for a while. Then I never saw it again. I hope it didn't electrocute anybody. We didn't get any reports of, right. of lost members of the family or anything like that. But, because, you know, it's got this guys who, who are not kind of into the boat anchors might not understand what we're talking about. But they were trying to save money on these receivers. It used a, a tube lineup called the All-American 5. And one of the ways they tried to save money was no transformer. All the tubes were designed so they could run straight off the 115 volts coming out of the plug. Even the filaments on the, the tubes were set up so that they would collectively drop all the voltage. There was a resistor in there somewhere, but they didn't even need a transformer. So no transformers. And this might sound like a, a brilliant idea until you consider that if you put the plug in wrong... <laughs> yeah. And, and this was before they had, you know, polarity-specific plugs, where the, the wider one is the neutral one. If you turned it around, man, you would, put, you would put 110, 115 volts on the chassis and probably on the cabinet. So it was real dangerous. These things were known as the widow makers. I, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. I, I don't know how many people were actually done in by these things. Probably none. But um, the potential for disaster is there, and it creates a weird kind of circuitry in which you have two different... If you look at the schematic diagram on an S38E, it has two different ground symbols sprinkled in on the schematic, one kind of showing an earth ground, one showing a chassis ground, and the, the one, one of them is meant to signify not B+, plus but B-. Minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it just... It, it's, it's, it's really complicated. Then the other thing... Okay, so I worked on it for a while. I got it. I got it going on on the main shortwave band. The uh, the antenna coils were kind of burned out as a result of plugging in the plug the wrong way, and and burning burning out a few of the coils on the antenna on the input section. Um, but it, it needed a lot of work. And the other thing I discovered as I worked on this thing is it's not a lot of fun to work on. The schematics are are poor. The, the, low, the best reproductions you can get now are poor. Very often, there, there'll be errors in them because you're looking at a, a slightly different version. Many different versions came out. There was Mark II versions and all this other stuff. There's really weird stuff in there, too. For example, the way that they get a BFO going is that you just they set the IF amplifier into oscillation at 455 kilohertz. And the way they do that is what they, you know, it's an old thing called, it's called a gimmick capacitor. It's not really a capacitor. It's just a wire Twisted that they run. They run through, like on the bottom, you have the pins from the 455KCIF transformer, and they just put this wire so it's physically located between the pins. And that physical location of the wire serves as the capacitor. So if you're working around down there and you move this wire a little bit, you have just, without knowing it, thinking you just moved a wire, you've just removed your gimmick capacitor, and the BFO doesn't work anymore. Um, man. All right. So I, I worked on it. I kept at it and I got it going so that, um, the main shortwave band is, is working. I repaired the, uh, the burned out antenna coil. And one of the other things you discover about this receiver is that it's got, when, when you're tuning the main tuning dial, you're, you're, you're tuning the local oscillator because it is a super hat. It's a super hat. There's no no crystal filters, but there's two IF transformers at 455KC, and that provides what selectivity it has. But when you tune that main tuning dial, not only are you tuning the, the local oscillator frequency, but you're simultaneously with another set of 
with the other capacitor on the gain capacitor, you're also tuning front the end. front end. Yeah. yeah. And there's not much on the front end. It's basically just one capacitor and one coil, and that's it. So there's not a lot of image rejection, and there's not a lot of, uh, you know, kind of broadcast band interference uh, stuff going on there. So the other thing is it's, it's, it's physically, it's, it's flimsy. The whole thing, I have to say, that's the word that comes to mind. It's flimsy. When you, when you, the tuning dial, it's got a really nice-looking you know, front panel. It's got all these exotic locations, Jakarta, Cairo, the USSR, all this stuff. And so it, it's, 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 it's a beautiful thing in that sense. But it, inside, it's not so beautiful. And I, I worked on it for a while. I, I actually did. I had fun with it, though. And it, it sounds great on, on AM, on 40-meter AM. I turn this thing on. I go to 40-meter AM. And it's, it's broad as a barn door, so it's definitely hi-fi. And it's, it's somehow the, the tubes and all that, the thermotrons, as our friend Grayson would put it, make it seem like it's the kind of radio that you should be using to listen to casually listen to an enhanced (laughs) enhanced and then the other thing that happened with it was that the day i finally got it working right i uh i was tuning around and i went into the 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 shortwave broadcast portion of the band and uh and i heard a kind of a familiar voice discussing what sounded like a really interesting ham radio topic and it just took me a couple of minutes to realize that I was listening to Arnie Coro, CO2KK, oh, yeah, yeah. on Radio Havana, Cuba, on his uh, ham radio show that he does. So, I mean, if that was one of the first things that I listened to when I got this thing going, I said, well, the radio gods have spoken. Obviously, they wanted me to get this, this thing working. I did install the isolation transformer. I did that mod. Um, and I, I worked on the power supply a bit. I put a fuse in it, which I think is a good idea. There were no fuses in this thing. Unbelievable how they, you know, the, the, the safety things that they did in, in back in the, back in the day, this thing was built in like 1958, 1959. So it's up on the shelf. I can listen to it occasionally, but as I was doing it, I, one of the frustrations I had was I realized that the little homebrew receivers that I had elsewhere in the shack were far better receivers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it worked better. So uh, that that led me into the uh, kind of pulling out old receivers and working on them. You, you know, you, you pick up some interesting things. A long, long time ago when I was working in aerospace, a new guy came into our group. And I was chatting with him, and uh, I found out he was a ham. And he was saying he used to work for Gonset. Remember Gonset, the Google yeah. boxes? He said, yep. he said, let me tell you how we – and he, he did some design work for him. And he said, uh, let me tell you how we design things. He said, Faust Gonset, which, who was the founder of the company, uh, after World War II, went out and bought all these surplus parts from the government, you know, vacuum tubes. He, he'd buy it for pennies on the dollar. And it'd show up at the warehouse, and he'd say, "Okay, design something from this," <laughs> you know, whether they whether they were standard parts or not. He had a whole warehouse full of them. So he said, "We'd go out and we'd see these tubes and say, oh, yeah, we can use that one there. We can use that one there.'" And they'd come up with these designs, and you'd look at them, and you'd say, "Man, that looks strange." And he said, "Well, that's the only thing that works with the parts we had." So I mean, instead well, I of instead of designing it first and saying, "Okay, you know, these are the kinds of tubes," they said, "Okay, here's the tubes. What can we do?" And, and it I, sounds kind of like what we do, Pete. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of suspect same thing occurred with, uh, you know, with helicrafters. They said, okay, here, here's our design criteria: low cost, <laughs> no power oh, yeah. transformer. Oh no! <laughs> well, well, the same tubes. <laughs> you yeah. know, s- simple the manufacturing. You know, well, you, the manufacturing. yeah. But I mean, I, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the All-American Five had been around in, in broadcast receivers. Mm. That's why they had these Bakelite, Bakelite cabinets were because so that people wouldn't blow themselves up by touching yeah, something yeah. metallic. Um, but, uh, yeah, and Heathkit definitely did the same thing. I mean, a lot of their yeah. production was based on what, the what, surplus what stock that they had there in the, uh, yeah, in the, in the warehouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah uh, kind of a postscript to this, uh, Atlas Radio. Um, Herb Johnson, the founder of the company, I, I had a, a, a lengthy conversation with him one time. And I was asking him about, you know, how he evolved the design. What did he do? I said, well, how did you, you know, do value engineering? Because there was such tremendous competition from the Japanese when, back in the 70s when, when the Atlas radios ruled the roost. He said, oh, real simple. He said, I tell the guys, take parts out. And he said, if it still works, <laughs> change the drawing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, that's, that's called Munson. M yeah, yeah. Munson. And then Munson, <laughs> the TV. Uh, yeah, yeah. He used to go in there and, you know, they'd, they'd have the TV set designed. And he'd go in there and pull out a capacitor. If it still worked, he'd say, don't put that in. Yeah, yeah, he'd yeah. pulling them out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know the, the double E's out there, yourself included, are, 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 are kind of recoiling in horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's like, Dilbert, it, it's like Dilbert's pointy-haired boss reaching in there and removing lines of code because they're yeah. <laughs> he well, doesn't no, think they're needed. The thing is, though, at the time it came out, it it served the market. A lot of hams cut their first teeth on the S thirty-eight, and I guess they had an A, B, C, D, E, and maybe an F. So so why not? So why? And then it just says, "I want something better." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's good for it's it's it is good for casual shortwave listening. There's not much on there on the shortwave bands these days. But uh, anyway, I still have a little bit of work to do on this because when I fixed the antenna input coils, I only fixed uh, one of them, and I still don't I don't have it really working well for um, the band for the low band from about 1.5 up to 3.5 megahertz, and uh, so I might go in there at one point and just just I'm not going to try to fix the old ancient decaying bypass surgery uh, yeah it, it needs it needs some 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 bypass surgery perhaps involving toroids and yeah, there you uh, go. modern you know toco inductors or something yeah. like that but i should be able to do that but i might go back to it but it, it's funny you know we, we talk about this from time to time there are, are rigs that you work on that you enjoy working on and that and there's rigs that you just work when you're working on it you're thinking i'm not having a whole lot of fun so you, you kind of it's a good idea to stay away from that and just sort of figure out what kind of circuitry, you know, makes you enjoy your time at the bench. So the S thirty eight I would put not in that category. But now I want to just mention uh, and talk a little bit about a couple of others, and it's along the same lines of uh, going back to old old rigs. I you know one of the rigs that I've had I built it way back in nineteen. Uh, 98, I think, was the uh, the 6U8 made for the Mighty Midget receiver, designed by Lou McCoy. But it might actually be an older design because I looked at an old an older handbook and there was something in there very similar. It was uh, three 6U8 tubes. Each tube had basically two had like I think I think it had a triode and a pentode in there. Yep. And so with three 6U8 tubes, you could build an entire superhead receiver. Six right? tubes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, Lou McCoy had this uh, in in an, an old QST, and I uh, I built it. And I've I, I, when I first built it, I I didn't even build the uh, the crystal filter. But I think I mentioned last time that I picked up somewhere I think on eBay um, a Toyo Electronics a CM four fifty five filter 
I didn't realize at the time that it was a crystal mechanical filter with a pretty sophisticated design in there, really steep skirts at 455 KCs. And I went and I put it, the first thing I did to, to work on this receiver again was to put that filter in there. And I got that going. Then I had to carefully adjust the, uh, the BFO because the placement of the BFO is really critical. If you get it wrong, the thing sounds horrible, either too, too many highs, too many lows, or cut off. But if you get it just right, you hit sweet that sweet spot. spot. Yeah. Oh, man. And I, what I, and I did. And I, I actually characterized the shape of the filter. And then I, I put a little connector on the back so that I could monitor the BFO frequency with the rig in the metallic case because it does you no good to set the BFO when it's out on the bench because when you put it then in the metal case, Straight the metal detunes it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you got you know you've got these big non-toroidal inductors sitting fairly close to a metal cabinet, and just the placement of that additional metal in there will detune it. So you have to set the BFO up when the thing is in the box. So I ran a little lead to the back where I could hook up the scope probe. Scope, of course, the Rigol scope has a frequency counter in it, and I could then adjust the BFO with the thing in the box and put the BFO just where I wanted it. And once I did that, it really sounds wonderful. It's, it's, it's great. But then the other thing I started work, working on, you know, because when you first get a receiver going, you're just so pleased that it's going and it's, it's receiving that you're willing to overlook deficiencies. But as you become better at home brewing and as you become more kind of, I guess, technically um, demanding or more aware of technical shortcomings, I started looking at this thing. And one of the things I realized that the tuning on it was really kind of flaky. All I had was I had an old uh, Halicrafter's capacitor in there from the junk box that tuned from like 3 to 38 picofarads. And it, it gave me the range that I, I needed, more or less. But it, the tuning was like really fast. It, was no, it, needed, it desperately needed a reduction Pure drive. reduction, yeah. Yeah, so I, I went into the junk box and I had a whole bunch of old reduction drives in there. And I, I, one of the things I realized as I was doing this is that there are vastly, you know, a reduction drive is not a reduction drive. There, there's big differences in them in how much they reduce the ratio between the turns on the dial and how much that results in the turn to the capacitor or whatever you're turning. Also, the stiffness on it. Some of these things seem to be made for kind of instrumentation where you have to set the thing to a very precise value and then just leave it there. So they're very stiff. Others have that kind of very loose feel that we associate with the main tuning dial on a receiver or a transceiver. So I had to experiment a little bit. I went through a few different uh, reduction drives. And finally, I found a Jackson Brothers. I think it's like a six-to-one reduction drive. And I, I got that in there. This is always a bit of mechanical work. You have to work on it. It's, 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 it's not really Alignment electronic. Is critical. Yeah, Alignment I mean, is critical. Yeah. You, you, you got to get it lined up just right. You got to get it placed in there. You got to get everything... It's got to be aligned perfectly, and it's got to be mechanically very stable. And then, then you have to worry about the um, the readout, the dial readout, because no glowing numerals in this one, Mr. Giuliano. <laughs> no, no. So with the reduction drive, analog. <laughs> one of the, with the reduction drive, one of the problems is you can't just put a put a pointer on the knob that you're turning, because you're going to be turning that knob six times every time the capacitor goes through its full range. So you have to have something that is actually physically linked to the capacitor um, it's rotor on blades. the reduction side. Is right. And, and, of course, many of us have discovered that uh, <clears throat> old CDs are perfect for this. 
So I, I just put the old CD in there so that when I turn the dial, the, the CD rotates, but it's rotating completely as the, the tuning dial, as the tuning capacitor. On the reduction side, yeah. Yeah, so once you get that, all you have to need to, need to you, then you can, you can label the thing any, any way you like, dymo, tape, or whatever you want. And uh, so I got this thing working, and I'm really pleased with it. I, I think I'm sure I have pictures of it up on the blog. But it sounds great, and the, the tuning is smooth. I have a Drake 2B knob on it, so there's a kind of a blast from the past, but a lot of soul in that old machine, oh, Pete. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. And it was, I tell you what, a lot more fun working on that thing than working <laughs> on the F-38. And it's lower voltage. Hey. Yeah, that's right. It's got a transformer yeah. in it. Yeah. Well, it's the, got... Yeah. Go ahead. I, the, the power supply in there I used from a Benton Harbor. It was from a Benton Harbor lunchbox, and I just kept the old Benton Harbor lunchbox power supply sure, in there. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, you're mentioning about dial material. Another good source is if you can find old hard drives. Yeah. And you open up the hard drive, it's got these, the disc in there. Oh, I didn't know that. Never thought of that. Yeah. Get if you got some oh. defunct hard drives, open open the case up, and as a matter of fact, I got a linear amplifier, had two defunct hard drives the backing plate on the linear amplifier and they're metal they're not plastic. oh that's cool. they're metal they're they're like you know and i i polished them up they're brass so they're really really nice looking so if you got any old hard drives around or you can find an old hard drive in a, in a garage sale or something like that take them apart because that's the hard disk yeah oh man that, that's a great that's a great idea you know for for, for my purposes I, I you know i said a cd an old cd is good but I found that the regular size CDs were too big. So what I used instead is sometimes when you bought some cheap electronic device, they would send you a, a, a oh, smaller, yeah. cheaper, little tiny mini one, yeah. right? That, that, you know, they, they always look kind of, you know, flaky. But they're just perfect size for reduction drives. So I managed, I, I rummaged around, I found one of those, I put it in there, that's just fine. The first time I did this, though, was in the first version of the bare bones Superhead that I built way back when, back in 97. And I, you know, I, I, I was just sort of stumbling through this pro this process. I, I never really had thought about this before. I knew that I needed a, a better reduction. I needed a reduction scheme. So I went out and bought a reduction drive, but I never even thought about, okay, now I got the reduction drive, but what am I going to do about frequency readout? And it was when I was scrutinizing the Jackson brother drive, there's these two little um, kind of screw holes. That's on, where it hooks on. on, yeah. That's where it hooks on. But then I didn't have anything to use, so I started looking around. What am I going to do? I need a, I need a disc around that side. You know what? You know what I use? I use the top of a coffee can. Sure. Yeah, it was just perfect. Why not? And it was you know really easy to work with. I still have it sitting up there, and it was <clears> one of these great early kind of innovations or mods that I came up with on my own, and I I was really proud of it. Well, I got that coffee can thing on there. And you know you have to watch yourself. You can cut yourself if you <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> try to tune too quickly. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I put some black tape on there and just you know labeled sure. the frequencies. And man, off I went. That was that was great stuff. Which brings us to the third project I want to discuss. Because I got a lot on my bench here. I hope you don't mind me monopolizing. No, no. Hey, hey, before we forget, don't forget SCD. We got to fit that in somewhere. All right, maybe we'll do SCD now. The um, okay, what we always ask people to do lately. To support solder smoke in a painless way that's going to cost you, the individual solder smoke listener, no money, is to make use of the Amazon search box that we have on the soldersmoke.blogspot.com page. If you're going to buy something from Amazon, hopefully something big and expensive, 
perhaps at your workplace. <laughs> Pete's pointing to his little OLED uh, uh, screen. Yes, we appreciate it. We got uh, twelve bucks. Good. Twelve bucks. Oh, right, we got we got five percent. Yeah, so what yeah. happens is if you buy it through the Sonic Smoke blog page, Bezos and those people out there at Amazon HQ, wherever it is, Seattle, Seattle they got to send us some money, and they do, and we use that to buy. Stuff. software, <laughs> so, yeah. microphone, so we can do the podcast. Yeah. Well, Pete wants me to buy a new microphone because the one I have, I, it, it, it looks like a- hell. <laughs> <laughs> it sometimes works like crap. It's got it's got a lot of character. It's, it's got soul, <laughs> soul in the old machine. It's got a big, it's got a green rubber band on it. You need to take this a is, picture of that, put it up on the blog, Bill. I, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll still let people see this. Anyway, this 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 just points out the 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 the, the need for you to make use of that yeah. little box. There, it's on the soldersmoke.blogspot page. It's up in the upper right, and uh, you should be able to see it. Sometimes if you have ad blockers on, you can't see it. Well, there's nothing we can do about that. But it's usually there. Usually it is easy to use. If you start your search there, cha-ching, we get the money from Bezos. All right. That, Bill that needs can... a new microphone. Buy lots of stuff. <laughs> We're going to launch a, yeah. a Kickstarter campaign to get me a microphone. Yeah. Uh, okay. But we were talking about the Barebones Super Hat. Now, this is a – I really this – was, this was the first Super Hat receiver that I built. And it's based on a Doug DeMaw design. From 1982, amazing. 34 years ago, this guy, you know, built this, uh, this designed this, re- this receiver. Uses 40673. Yes. Uh, <laughs> dual gate MOSFETs that Pete that we all love very much. Um, and it's got. It, 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 he also there's also another connection. That, I mean, there's so much soul in this old machine. He used color burst crystals for the filter. 3.579. That's another thing so important to us because of the Michigan Mighty Might. But he took these crystals because DeMar always admitted that he was he was quite economical in his approach to ham radio. So in designing the crystal filter, he, he chose 3.579 as the crystal filter frequency because he had a big bag of these crystals, and he, and he designed the crystal filter for that. Um, so when I, I first built this thing, I, I, I was really new to home brewing, it was the first real big serious receiver project that I made. I built everything on, on separate little boards, one stage at a time, and I would I would lay out the boards. I actually etched the boards. I still hadn't hadn't moved into Manhattan construction at this point, but I etched like six or seven different boards for each one of the different stages. I got each one working just like you're supposed to. Tested each stage, put it all together, got it working, did the thing with the uh, the coffee can top, but. I really loved this receiver. It works great. Now, I built mine for, for 20 meters, and I followed uh, DeMoy's uh, uh, recommendation that it go with a VXO. So I had a, um, a variable crystal oscillator in there, and I used this thing for, for CW for a long, long time and made a lot of completely homebrew contacts with it using the 6-watt VXO transmitter. It was great fun. Um, a few years later, I picked up another one because I was talking about it on one of the uh, – the bulletin boards, and some some guy wrote to me and said, "Hey, hey, I have one, and I'll 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 send it to you if you want it." So, I bought it from him and didn't work on it. Put it off in the corner. Didn't do anything with it. A few years later, I dragged it out. It was this one was built on a far circuits circuit board, and if you see pictures of the bare bones superhead, this is the one that Demaw displays because shortly after he designed it, somebody went out there and designed a very compact far 
circuits circuit board for it. And so the, 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 the one that I bought off the bulletin board had been assembled by somebody using one of these far boards. So mine was spread out over a big piece of wood in a big cabinet. It's sort of like a, a big, it's almost like the size of a small TV. But this thing was tiny. It's almost like the size of the palm of your hand. And everything is very compact, everything in there, but exactly the same circuit. The only difference being that the, um, the guy who built this one had, had switched. He didn't use 3.579 crystals. He used 5 megahertz crystals. So the IOFs at 5 megahertz. You get to listen to WWB. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but through 3.579, you get to listen to W1AW. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, yeah, both. You know. Anyway, but that, that, that's, that's a little bit further on in the story. But anyway, I, I really like this receiver. And he originally had the VFO as a, a Varactor-tuned VFO. I think he had it set up on 20. And he actually had a DC to DC converter in there to take the 12 volts from the supply and boost it up, I think, to 24 volts because he wanted to get more frequency coverage. If you're using Varactors to tune, the more voltage you could put across there, the more variation of the voltage, the more frequency coverage. I didn't really like that. I thought it was kind of because you had this very complicated DC to DC converter you know, chip in there. And so I took that out and I changed it. For a while, I had this receiver on 17. For a while, I, and then I went ahead and expanded the, uh, the, uh, it, it, the, the filter was originally designed for CW. But I changed the cap values and changed it to uh, a broader, you know, three point you know, three, three, kilohertz, three kilohertz, uh, you know, crystal filter. So then it, for a while it was on 20 and for a while it was on 17. Well, having gotten kind of fed up with the S38 pig with lipstick, I, I pulled this thing out and started working on it again. And I decided, okay, sunspots are disappearing. We've got to move down in frequency. Now I'm going to put this thing on 40 meters. It's going to be on a, yet a third band in its lifetime. And oh, going back, we discovered who built it. It was Dale Parfit, W4OP, a really a master oh, home yeah. brewer, oh, yeah. designer. The guy, he came up with Parfit antennas. He's a moon bounce guy. And then I, when I was asking questions about it years later, Dale was helping me. And then finally he said, hey, the one you have, it sounds awful familiar. <laughs> he said, did it originally have a DC to DC converter in it? And I said, yeah. It turned out it was his. We didn't even know. But anyway, um, so... Okay, now I'm going to move it to 40 meters. Now you get into some design questions here. Um, where do you where do you run the VFO? If you've got a five megahertz IF, right, and you want to put this thing on 40 meters, you're pointing up. Uh-uh. Uh, that's uh, what I would do. <laughs> uh-uh. That's what I would uh-uh. do. Uh-uh. No, no, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's really interesting. Pete's saying go up. He's saying that you should run it around 12 megahertz. Right. Right. No. And here's why. And I tried it. First, I'm going to do it with a VFO. I'm not going to do it with one of your digital gizmos that are super <laughs> stable and all that. I'm going LC, my friend. I'm, I'm making RF the old-fashioned oh, way. Well. Coils and caps. That's it. So that's hard to do. Hard to do. It's not impossible, but it's harder to do at 12 megahertz than it is, say, at, oh, I don't know, 2.2 megahertz, right? Which is the other option. But here's the other problem, and this is a really interesting design problem that I think our listeners would be interested in. Okay, this, I, I went ahead and redesigned the 5 megahertz filter. I took out one of the crystals, I did all the tests, I got all the parameters, and then I plugged it into the software that comes with experimental methods and RF design. 
I specified that I wanted a bandwidth of about three KCs for, you know, fairly enhanced, easy listening sideband. And so I got the capacitor values. I got the, uh, the end, the impedance values at the end, and I got the predicted filter shape. All right. Now, when you look at that predicted filter shape, you see what they mean when they say this is an LSB filter. Now, you say, what the heck? Why? 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 What difference is it upper sideband, lower sideband? If you've got a filter that's covering three KCs at or about five megahertz, you should be able to use it on upper sideband or lower sideband. Well, you can, except it's better to use it as an LSB filter. And here's why. The skirts at the high frequency end are much steeper. So if you look at that filter shape, down below, the filter, it kind of goes up rather slowly. It reaches the peak. It goes along the flat portion. But then at the high frequency end, bang, that skirt comes down a lot steeper. So if you're interested in sideband rejection, it's much better to put the carrier oscillator at the high end and to be looking at lower sideband, right? Okay. But then you say, wait, 40 meters is lower sideband. All those signals on 40 meters are lower sideband. But here we get into sideband inversion, the sideband inversion problem, right? So if you take uh, the, the local oscillator at 12 megahertz and you have the signal coming in at 7 megahertz and you're hoping to do this subtraction to put it right happily into the passband of your IF filter, your crystal filter, you've got a problem. Because remember the rule of thumb. We love rule of thumbs. If you are subtracting the signal with modulation from the local oscillator that doesn't have modulation. Just remember, if you're subtracting the signal with modulation from the signal without modulation, you will get sideband inversion. So the situation we just described, you're taking that 7 megahertz low, lower sideband signal with modulation, and you are subtracting it from your recommended 12 megahertz. Boom, you get sideband side inversion. Side right, so now you've got an upper sideband signal, and you're going to try to fit that upper sideband signal into this, what is preferentially a lower sideband filter. You could do it, but you'd have to move the BFO to the other side of the passband. And when you did that, you, you wouldn't get the same amount of opposite sideband rejection that you would get if you had used it as a lower sideband filter. See what I'm saying? Am I am I right? Uh, yes, except. Tell me. Except um, I did that with a forty meter transceiver, and the problem uh -huh. I ran into is the VFO or the LO is at around two and a half megahertz, because I used not a five megahertz filter but a four point nine one five two, so it's just yeah. it's <clears throat> the the LO is just slightly higher than what you're using. Right. And it was feeding through the system. Uh huh. You, you remember the problem you had with the. Well, I, I had the problem with the. I know. I, and had, I had that in mind. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. So, no, no. on transmit, on transmit, in order to, to do that on the transmit side, I had, to, I had to put a band reject filter in there so that we didn't get the VFO because the, the, the third harmonic is right on the 40 meter band. Well, mine was worse because I was, I was used. Uh, my. The, the filter that I was using was at 11 megahertz. And for 40 meters, it was just a nightmare. That's why I abandoned 40 meters. So I, w I was aware of the problem. 
But I figured this is just on the receive side. I'm not, there's no transceiver and, here. And that's that, that's perfect. But I mean, but, but you, you yeah. run into the problem. You try to do it, make a transceiver. Oh, oh, I know, I know. And it's I think you're right. It's always better if you can to have <clears throat> the, the local oscillator above the IF frequency. Always better. But in this case, for receive, because I have no, I have no, I have no hard burden. <laughs> but but Pete. You'll also love the way I tested this concept okay. because before I charged off and built a 2.3 megahertz LO, I went and pulled out uh, one of my digital frequency generators, the uh, Arduino with an AD9850, and I, I tuned it up to 2.2 megahertz and just hooked it up quick and dirty into the mixer on the, the bare bones thing. So I was able to tune around and it sounded great. I, I wasn't picking up any birdies, nothing. Everything sounded perfect. So I knew that this scheme would work on, on this particular receiver. Yeah, no question. So that, but, but it was interesting for me to go through the, the thought process on it. And I mean, I mean look, if I, had, if I was starting from scratch, maybe I would have picked a different IF. Maybe I would have, you know, but, but you, you start with the constraints kind of imposed on you by the equipment that you have in your hand. And, okay, I didn't want to go and build a completely new crystal filter and rip this thing apart. I had a nice 5 megahertz filter in sure. there. and so I, I, But I wanted to put it on 40. And so, okay, there, there we go. Um, but that, that gets us to the, um, uh, the, the WWV problem. Yeah, big time. I mean, the, uh, it, Doug DeMoor's design had, you know, it originally had a very kind of simple front-end uh, filtering. It's just, again, just much like the S30AE, he had nothing but one coil and a cap in a parallel tuned circuit there at the, at the front end. So that's not going to provide you a lot of protection. And sure enough, it's, it was interesting. It was depending on the time of day, but early morning when I turned that receiver on, bong, 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 <laughs> bong, nothing but WWV out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And it was so strong, it was kind of blanketing uh, and, and everything. And I, and it wasn't, I, I knew I was picking it up from the antenna, which was important because, you know, this thing is now spread out on the bench and I'm thinking I might just be picking it up just from the wiring around this thing. But no, if I switch the antenna out, then, it then disappeared see, yeah, completely, yeah. which is a good clue because it realizes <laughs> that's, that's the point where you have to attack this problem. So I went and I pulled out, pulled out the handbook. I pulled out experimental methods and RF design and I did a quick and dirty, um, you know, I put two additional LC uh, parallel circuits in there with a little bit of capacitance between them. Both of them tuned to set basically a bandpass filter uh, with, you know, a lot more kind of, a lot, lot steeper skirts than the simple, you know, two filter, higher Q, higher Q circuits, the whole thing. And I, 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 was, I was glad because I was, this, this, this enabled me to add even more soul to this old machine because when I reached into the junk box, the coils that I were going to use was in an envelope when it was marked from Michael Rainey, AA1PJ. Oh, there you go. There you go. So he sent me these, these great little uh, TOCO coils, green core, that had the right inductance value. I picked the cap values. I put it in there. I built this thing. It took me about a half hour to build this little bandpass filter. And as soon as I put it in there, man, WWV was completely, completely eradicated. You know, without the filter, it was blanketing the receiver. With the filter, it was just gone. And, you know, 40 meters was still coming through gangbusters. So that was kind of a, kind of a, fun, uh, a fun little uh, thing. The, 
a couple other things I don't want, and then I'll, well, I'll stop talking about this because I've been droning on at length about it. But um, the um, oh, one of the things was the tuning arrangement. I have a little 100 picofarad uh, cap in there, and I don't have a reduction drive on this one. I physically don't have room to install a reduction drive, but the cap coil values that I selected resulted in a really nice tuning rate for this coil. The whole thing, uh, the, for this cap, when I go from one end of the cap to the other, I'm only tuning across about 20 kcs of, of the dial. And so, and it's, it's nice and smooth, it's, it's loose, it's not tight like some of the reduction drives that I mentioned earlier. But I'm only covering 20 kcs. I want to I be able to tune the whole band, which is like 275 kcs. So the old days, what they would have done is they would have had a band spread and a band set set but i did pretty much the same thing i didn't do it with an additional coil but i had a rotary switch like a 16 position rotary switch so i put that in there and each position on the switch switches in an additional 50 picofarads of capacitance sure. i just i calculated how much i needed to get you know, i knew that the segments would be roughly 20 kcs so I did the math, and I just said, okay, if I just switch in, you know, a bunch of different, you know, one one cap is 50 picofarads, the next one you switch in is 150, the next one you switch in is 200. So you're adding 50 picofarads each time you turn so the switch. So you're dropping it down in frequency. Right. Yeah. So you, you got the top, the top one's set at the top end at seven. Without any caps, and then as you progress, it, then, it goes then you all put the way a cap down. In, yeah. You, you're dropping it down in 20 kilohertz segments. Sure, it's kind of it's kind of goofy by modern standards, but it works, and it's really great because you you can you can mark it and you can you, you can put it in there and you get pretty adept at doing this. You say, okay, I want to go down 20 kcs. You can boom, and each each switch position is marked as the high end of that tuning, so you, it's easy to do. Why not? So that's uh, that's where I am with that. I've I've had a real lot of fun with this thing. What I'm working on now is st a VFO stability. And uh, this is, I know you, you know, you, you as, as a digital guy there with your glowing numerals. Well, well wait a minute. I, and I'm just going to mention this. If you go to my JES Systems website, jessystem.com, uh -huh. there's a 40 slash 17 meter transceiver in there. And the 40 yeah. uses an LCVFO and uh -huh. it uses one of the 2.2 megahertz. And it has the band reject filter. So if you want to convert that to to a sideband transceiver someday, uh -huh. you can put the band reject filter in there and not worry about the BFO feeding through. So your your scheme works absolutely perfect, except if you're going to use it on transmit, you got to make sure you don't get that VFO headed up right out yeah. of the bandpass filter. <clears throat> yeah, I know. I, I well, uh, th thanks. I'll take a look at that. And, and it's you know, I, I was only kidding you about the glowing numerals and stuff because I know you've been through the LC stuff. Oh yeah. A lot more longer than I have, but the other interesting thing now, and I think this will be of interest to guys who are who are contemplating similar projects. Okay, I got it. I got it going. Now it's sounding great. But as I'm sitting there listening to it, it's um, it drifts. I mean, not enough to really be annoying, but too much. So in the course of a few hours, it would drift like one kc. So if I had, if I was listening to a sideband conversation, <laughs> that work on forty meters, by the way, <laughs> it would 
10 hertz. You drift oh, 10 hertz. Oh, they, they, they go crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the frequency police will get after you. <laughs> they, they have conniptions. Yeah, yeah, 10 hertz. Yeah. But anyway, um, it was, it was, it was, it was, I mean, I could just, you could just reach over and retune it, but I'm, I'm realizing that I think this could be better. So the oscillator is drifting slowly over time. It's very stable. It's nice. It's clean, but it's drifting. All right. So you start looking, you go through the literature, you know, and you, 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 you consult, you tap into the tribal knowledge and there's a couple of things in there that are likely suspects. One the coil that I was using in this thing, toroidal, with um, number six material, yellow yellow material in there. And when you read Doug DeMore's advice on this stuff, he always says things like, you can use a, a, a toroid, you know, um, a, a number six type toroid, but it's not optimal because you've got that material in there and slight changes in temperature. Because that material is in there, will result will result in big changes in in frequency. He said it's far better to use an air coil, air an, an air uh, core, a solenoid, just a, a regular coil. So what I did is I went in and I I had this thing working fine with a, with the toroid, and I went I just pulled the toroid out and measured what the induction value was. It was like four point two microhenries. So I said, okay, now I'm going to wind an air core, air core coil of similar inductance. So there's a couple little uh, websites that'll help you. You'd say, okay, what's the core diameter that you're going to use? How long wire material and everything else? So, but that just gives you in the ballpark. And then I pulled out my almost all digital electronics tester and got it so that I, I had it, I had it just right. But the interesting thing was I couldn't get this oscillator to percolate with all of the coils that I made. I found that if I used really fine, like number 26 wire, somehow Barkhausen's criteria, your friend Barkhausen, was, wasn't happy. Yeah. But when I, when I increased the size of the wire a bit and I got the, the coil 20, just right. 22, yeah. Yeah. Then it started going really fine. So I, I have... Now I'm just testing it. I have it set up on the bench, and I've left it in there overnight um, uh, to watch and monitor the frequency drift. But I'm already noticing a big improvement in oscillator stability going from the uh, the, uh, the the toroidal coil to the air core air core coil. For the for the core, I'm using something I've used in previous uh, oscillators. I just get one of these coat hangers that has like a, a little cardboard, cardboard tube. tube. Yeah. And um, that cardboard tube is just perfect. It's the right size. It's easy to work with. And it, it's just, I mean, it's, it's like air. There's, there's, electrically, there's nothing there. So, go ahead. You know what Hayward would tell you to do? Use a white core. A white yeah. core, not a yellow core. And to boil it. Yeah, I, well, I mean, yeah, they boil it. Boil it, use a white core, and it has far better frequency stability than the yellow core. So I mean, but, that's not, but the, not but not as good as the air core though, right? Um, probably not. But I mean, if you wanted to use a toroid and not go through the rain dance, now you do yeah. have a you do have a problem with the um, air core, and that is what do you do once you built the coil? You got to put coil dope on it so it doesn't move. 
Yeah, I know. You got to well, gotta anchor it. You know, you got to yeah, you got to anchor yeah, yeah. it. And, and I, I, so because yeah. that's that's another problem. Now this this sent me off to the uh, uh, when I was working on one of these a while back. It it sent me off to the uh, to the uh, to the CVS pharmacy in in in, in search of clear fingernail polish varnish there you go <laughs> coil dope <laughs> that's why they used to sell coil dope <laughs> i was listening to, i i have a blog post on a uh a uh on, on the on the blog from a, a guy in chile um manfred and his his knack story there and it really oh, made yeah. me laugh it, it was a great story you guys really got to take a look at it but he talked about his embarrassment as a 15 year old boy having to go in to buy pink uh, uh nail polish varnish because he needed to use it for a similar purpose in a homebrew project, yeah. But um, the other thing I was going to mention about building VFOs, and we're, we're getting into a little bit of overtime here, but uh, one thing guys need to realize, and this is something that it took, it took me a couple of uh, episodes to realize, you really have to let those things cool down after you solder stuff in. Don't, don't solder together a VFO and hook up the frequency counter and say, oh my God, it's drifting. Yeah, it's drifting because you just put this 800-degree soldering iron in there. And it's coming down to ambient. Right, and especially the capacitors and the coil are changing temperature dramatically. So don't don't make any judgment on these things until you've let it cool at least overnight. It takes a long time for these things to to stabilize. And and then make the runs. Then make it. Then then leave the the frequency counter on and see how it changes. Get your notebook out. And make the changes that way. Another little bit of. Or of you tribal. could use an SI fifty three fifty one. He's incorrigible. He's incorrigible. You know, I mean, you, know, you, know, you know, I know you want to do that, but then you finally say basta. <laughs> you know, you get, get hook it up. <laughs> you know, it doesn't move. Oh man, but there's a. It just. I like it. I like this doing it this way so much. There's so much soul in this old machine. Well, when you think yeah. about it, 30, 30, Listen, he designed this thing thirty-four sure, years ago. That is a very significant portion of the history of radio for the human race. Yeah. Right. I mean, remember, broadcast radio in the United States didn't start until nineteen twenty-five. Yeah. Right. And 20. so this, uh, I, th- I thought it was twenty-five. Twenty. KDKA. Oh really? Yeah. Well, back then, back you know, then. In, in, the, in the 20s, and and here it is. I'm working on a receiver that that Doug Demore designed 34 years ago. So a significant portion of radio history, and I, I really like that I have Dale Parfit's contributions in there. That uh, you know, I got Mike Rainey's parts in there, and and this is an example of a receiver that I I enjoyed working on. Yeah. Unlike that pig with lipstick. Yeah. That's, yeah. Oh. But but let me make a comment. Put. Put the oh. frequency, put the frequency part, generation part aside. That is one solid design. I gotta tell you. I mean, if you found one thing wrong with it, it's just drifting components, which you're working on. But put put that aside. The basic architecture, you could lift that out and do it. And and the simple sieve is much like the bare bone superhead. With, yeah, but with the but, frequency generation. But 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 the other problem though, I mean, I, I'm I'm anticipating emails that we're going to get. People don't like the four zero six seventy three as a mixer, right? Okay, put something else in there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to mention. I agree with you though. I I, I have no problem with it. I, I I like it, and I I always as a kid, I really liked the four zero six seventy three. 
J310s. <laughs> Today. Oh, I'm sorry? J310s. Hook two J310s right, right. together. Yeah. There you are. The reason I liked it was because it was easy to understand, especially as a mixer, right? Because you had one signal going in on one gate and the other signal going in on the other gate. And you could almost see how the, the, the two signals were interacting and producing sure. the mixing products. And I, I really liked that. And, and, and so that was one of my, I, and you know, when I, I'll admit this, when, when, when we heard that the 40673s were going out of production, I went out and bought a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I got I got a supply, and there's a lot of equivalent devices, and there's the J310 thing that you guys that you worked up. So uh, yes, three cheers for dual gate MOSFETs. Well, there, there's the other side of that. You realize the 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 different circuits that you can build with a, a basic dual gate MOSFET configuration can be an oscillator, can be an amplifier, can be a mixer, can be a product detector. I mean, it, it, it's so ideal. And that was the concept behind the simple sieber. Let's take the same basic circuit and just with small modifications, put it in different pieces of, of the, the radio. And you didn't have to, you know, if you just had a bag of J310s or 40673s, you could build most of the receiver and even the transmitter. I mean, I, I detailed how you could do the transmitter using the J310s. So it's ideal. I mean, if you're trying to be cost effective, I bought a bag of 50 for, for eight bucks, ten bucks with the shipping. So I mean, that's a hell of a deal. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. It's time for solder smoke mailbag. Yep. You, you've already mentioned the mail from Japan. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? Have you been anything else? I know you've been getting a lot of a lot of a lot yeah, of great just, mail and feedback. Yeah, it's just amazing. All of a sudden, you know, people say, "Oh yeah, I, I I've been hesitant to contact you, but I built this." <laughs> you look at it and say, "Wow, <laughs> you know." Yeah, don't be hesitant, don't guys. Be hesitant. Let's, no, and, and we, you we know, love, most of love. the stuff I'll send to you, and it ends up on the on the on the blog. So, you know, that's great. All right, and then you, well, I don't. I, I'm I'm sometimes reluctant to do that because I want people to visit your blog. So we'll 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 do that. But don't don't forget to visit Pete's blog. He's got a lot of great stuff up there, and you put a lot of work into that. I mean, you you're 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 really you're much better than I am at documenting things, and so. Check out Pete's blog, N6QW at blogspot.com. Um, I got some good mail here. Uh, Walter, K3ASW, wrote to me a while back about bare-bones superhats, and he answered a question that I had about how DeMauw did the important impedance matching at either oh, end yeah. of the filter. You know, because in, with a crystal filter, the, cap, the capacitor values will determine the bandwidth, but the ripple... The, the, the elimination of ripple depends largely on the impedance that you're hanging on on either end of the filter. And uh, Walter helped explain the thinking behind Doug DeMaw's uh, choice. He has, he has 10K. He, he has parallel LCs at either end of the LC filter shunted by 10K resistors. So the 10K resistors set, set the, 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 the value and then he uses the transformers in the tune circuit to transfer to transfer to the desired impedance, which uh, you have to. Yeah, I think you have to get, oh, crack open the books to, to get your head around that. But thanks for explaining that, Walter. It's a uh, two thousand to one transformation. So, yeah. Or two hundred to one goes from ten k to fifty or five hundred, right. something like that. Yeah, isn't that? Yeah, and, and when I and when I when I, once I realized this, I I realized what he was doing, and then when I looked at the the impedance values required by my crystals in the five megahertz, I, I realized that I had to go in and change the turns ratio on the transformers. And 
at first I didn't think I got it right because it looked like there was a lot of ripple. But when I went and, lit and checked it recently, I got it right because it's the, the pass band is really smooth across the top. So it, it was, it was, that was another fun project to work on. Hey, we've heard from our, our friend, Steve Silverman, KB three S I I, who is part of our, you know, solemn oath to get on 160 oh, meters. Oh, oh, the dagger. <laughs> you guys got to do ribs. it. I'm waiting. I did mine. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not going to say winter's coming because <laughs> summer's coming, but after that, there's fall and there's winter. Yeah, so we'll try yeah. to do it next year. Yeah. But anyway, Steve was commenting on uh, audio madness. You know, we have a lot of fun with the audio files. Yes. Enhanced. You know, when when, Ar when Armand and I were at the uh, Winterfest, they were selling gold-plated fuses. you got to be kidding me. No, fuses, regular fuses, like little fuses you have in the box, but with the connectors of gold, you know. So there's because contact resistance, so you get the maximum voltage. So you, so you don't get you so so you get you don't get any annoying noise because if you don't have gold plated fuses in your audio you amplifier, get noise, yes, yes, that's <laughs> absolutely right. got it. And you got to have those oxygen free cables. Yeah. Where, and I think that some of those cables are like thousands of bucks because the oxygen has been removed from the copper and it sounds better that way. Anyway, Steve was alerting me to the fact that, and this is, was a new one to me, that, you know, some of them are using fiber optic cables to carry um, the audio or the digitized audio around the different elements of the hi-fi systems because it's been digitized. So, of course, you'd use a fiber optic cable like an Ethernet cable or something like that. But some of these cables are better for audio than others. Think about that. And so they've been doing tests on which fiber optic cables have the characteristics to better carry hi-fi audio. Wow. Wow, this, this, we should get into this business. Piece. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, back when I worked for a living, we did a major conversion at, at the plant there in St. Louis to all fiber optic cable for our computer systems. And, and the reason was higher data rates higher data rates in the fiber optic because you didn't have copper cable. You had a certain amount of resistance and that limited the data rate. You went to fiber oh. optic. So then we had to invest in polishing equipment. When you cut the cable, it's yeah, got to yeah. be, be flat. <laughs> so we yeah. had to polish the cable. I mean, what a nightmare it, this was. <laughs> did it enhance the presence? Well, it enhanced the data rate. <laughs> <laughs> did it help with the brightness? Yeah. Oh, we're going to get in trouble here. Um, which, oh, yeah, which is, reminds me of something. We were supposed to do something on the amateur code. We were supposed to mention something about the code. You know, we, balance and, yeah. uh, and all that. The one we wanted to mention, this one, is friendly. The amateur is friendly, yes. which is important. Yes. So we should remember that. And so those of you who are out there getting unfriendly sometimes on the handbands, remember the amateur's code. They're out there, Pete. Oh. We're not going to mention them. Every day you hear them. Every day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I don't even want to. I don't even want to repeat some of the stuff you hear, but I think people should take a look at that code and realize that the amateur is supposed to be friendly, willing to help the fellow hams and especially newcomers. All right, um, let's see what else we got uh, from Dino KL0S. I mentioned to him that you know during the when I was struggling with the um, I mentioned on the blog I think when I was struggling with the uh, Helicrafters receiver about and oh no when I was struggling with the reduction drives I, I said I wish I had some more of those nice Heath kit capacitors that QF came out ones. of the QF1Q <laughs> multipliers 
And I, I went out onto eBay and I found a QF1 Q multiplier. <laughs> and it's sitting here looking at me. Yes. Now, now Grayson has chimed in from Turkey and, and has <laughs> admonished me not to slaughter this thing. I was hoping that when it came that it would be all messed up. You know, but it's that it pristine. Oh, it's beautiful. And but so it's gonna it's gonna really break my heart to chop this thing out. Yeah, and you're gonna get accused of raising the value. <laughs> well, this 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 has come up, and um, uh, well, Bob uh, W H U I uh, has uh, caused me for caused me of engaging in market manipulation. Yes, he says I'm doing it on um, uh, SDR dongles because he found one on Amazon that was selling for like twelve hundred bucks. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and somebody said, "Yeah, you know, it's part of a scheme. Drake two Bs, a solid state design for radio amateur, yeah. QF one Q multipliers." But uh, Dino said that um, he was worried that you know this the slaughter of the QF ones might spread to other Heathkit equipment, and he said he was thinking of hiding away his VF one VFO because I might come after that too yeah, and search yeah. production well, drive. Yeah, and it's got the capacity. But no, 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 no. I checked. I checked. It doesn't have the reduction drive in it. Oh. Nope. Oh, that, nope. that was nope. the problem. Nope. That was it. It could have used one. <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, while, while we're at it, I just mentioned something here. Um, it, check the uh, Heathkit group on Yahoo. Uh, and this goes back to AA, almost all digital electronics, as you are aware, uh, the, the owner, uh, Neil, passed away about a year ago. And uh, they haven't taken up any production. So one of the things that they made was the nice digital display that was customized for different radios. It would took took in consideration what the IF, like you could buy one for a Hammerlin or you could buy one for a National or Heathkit. Someone now has come up with, with a, a board. They reverse engineered it. So for the Heathkits... Uh, they're going to start to market these boards so that you can have a digital display, kind of like what I did with the HW101. You know, I put that yep. in the front panel. So so people are kind of taking up the slack, and, and, and that's specific to Heathkit. But the Heathkit group on Yahoo, uh, if you have something that you wanted to put a uh, digital display in a Heathkit product, uh, they're, they're not, not going to be boards available. You can do that. So, I mean, it's interesting how the vacuum gets filled, you know. So well, maybe someone will come up with an LC meter <laughs> like like they had because that's the one I I'd like to see. Yeah, that's that. There's a real need for that. Somebody should definitely do it. Yeah. yeah. All right, Pete. We're double, triple overtime now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks again for your two years of participation. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and your 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 contract will be renewed. <laughs> okay. Hey, that's great. Our, great. Our, our attorneys from Dewey Cheatham and Howe will be contacting you shortly. Yes, and and please take a picture of the microphone and put it on the blog. Our 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 <laughs> listeners want to see your microphone. I mean, it's got more rubber bands on it today. Well, yeah, because I had to take it apart I, before we started talking because I, I and, it sounded. Awful, and that's a baby wipe. That's that's no, no, the baby. I'm, I'm I'm long past baby wipes. That's, oh, that's just, just a paper, picture. That's just paper towel. Paper towel. Okay. It used to be paper, baby wipes, and, but now and, it's just and, paper and towel. The, and the boom mic holder is a former lamp. Is that? It, right? used, it used to be a lamp, <laughs> and it's secured in place by a piece of uh, of gorilla tape. Oh, cool. And, um, and the, the microphone itself is a little cheapo electric computer mic in there. Well, it, it works great. It just looks like hell. <laughs> and, but it's supported too. I mean, the, the paper towel, which you're hearing right here, that's the pop filter. So I don't know, pop, 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 pop. There you go. And then inside, 
the audio, the presence is enhanced by an old sock. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it was clean when I put it in there. Don't <laughs> okay. worry about it. That, was, that would have made solder smoke recordings a little bit more difficult. Yeah. But it's back in there. So you could tell we're, we're at the cutting edge of audio technology here. No, you know what the perfect answer is? Use what you got. There's nothing wrong with using what you got. See, that's it. That's why I stick with this thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because, it, you know, I, I say every week that it's produced by, uh, you know, roadkill computers in the wilds of Northern Virginia. <laughs> well, this is definitely the roadkill yeah. component to it. Yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm sort of lusting over it. I wished I had one. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about marketing them. Yeah, there you, know? you go. Watch out, Bob Heil, yeah, man. Yeah, there you selling, go. going to be selling go. these uh, solder smoke microphones because they have presence. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, really good. <laughs> Well, I'm going to say 7-3s from the left coast here. 7-3s from Northern Virginia. Thanks a lot, Pete. You bet. Be in touch. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, Consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!